Building influence is something anyone can learn. It's an investment you can make in yourself and it can hold the keys to achieving your dreams and having the life and impact you want to have. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. I've learned a lot over three decades about building and sustaining influence and how using it and using it effectively can make a big, big difference in your life and career. Here on She Said, She Said podcast, we're digging into the different dimensions that help us build and sustain influence. If you thought being an influencer was just for social media, think again. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, negotiating a promotion, running your household, or trying to connect with those who don't share your views, understanding and using the different dimensions of influence will increase your chances of success whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast is a smart, efficient investment you can make in you. I'm really glad you're here and I'm excited we're on this journey together. Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I am really glad to have you here. And I am very excited to be rolling out this new season of the podcast. We actually rolled out our first episode of this season last week in episode 260. And I talked a little bit about some of my favorite tips for navigating post-vacation overwhelm (laughs) or when you're coming back to work after a break. And I share eight of my favorite tips, and I've been receiving a lot of great feedback on that episode and great suggestions that you guys have for how you navigate getting back into work and going back to school and all those great things. So thank you for that. This week, though, I have a very special episode and a very special guest. We're going to be talking about failure. Now, on an intellectual level, we already know that we learn more from our failures than from our successes, right? But that doesn't always make navigating failure easy, and it also doesn't mean that all failure is created equal. So how can we learn to better understand which failures will make us better risk takers and will lead to more innovation and creative solutions versus those failures that actually cause more harm than good. This week's guest is going to help us dive into this topic. She is award-winning Harvard Business School Professor of Management and Leadership, Amy Edmondson. Now, Amy is world-renowned for her research and thought leadership on psychological safety and its impact on organizational culture. She has been named by Thinkers 50 as the number one management thinker in the world, and her TED Talk on how to turn a group of strangers into a team has been viewed more than three million times. Now, I first met Amy when I participated in an executive education program at Harvard Business School back, oh gosh, about a decade ago. I loved her then and thought she was so brilliant 
and have followed her career and her work ever since. And I am really excited to share her with you today. We are going to be diving in specifically to Amy's new book. That's the topic of the conversation today. It is called The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. I had a chance to read the book over the course of the summer. It's actually coming out this next week on September 5th, and it is truly fantastic and will give you a lot to think about and unpack as you think about failure. In the book, she charts a lot of new ground related to understanding failure in the context of psychological safety and why that really matters in helping us actually maximize the value that we get from risk-taking and failures. Her contributions in this space are literally second to none. Now, before we jump into the conversation with Amy, I want to just highlight a few things that we're going to cover, a few things that you'll learn specifically from the conversation. We talk about how understanding the different types of failure and why is so key to innovation, but also to helping us truly thrive in life. Because let's face it, failure goes with the territory, right? So understanding the different types of failures and how to navigate that is incredibly helpful. We also talk about the role of psychological safety, Amy's true expertise, and the role that it plays in creating the conditions for the right kinds of failure, as she talks about in the book. We talk about the best way to deal with fear, which of course tends to ride shotgun with failure. We talk about how failure can be a differentiator, and I get Amy's advice for how to think about that. We talk about failure in the context of parenting and psychological safety in the home. We talk about the role of shame, and we also talk about Amy's career pivot story and her advice for knowing when to persist versus when to pivot. Friend, so many great topics in this episode. I am really excited for you to hear it. So here is this week's conversation with Professor Amy Edmondson. Amy, welcome to She Said, She Said. Laura, thank you for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. I am really excited about this book. This topic of failure presents a lot of confusion to people. We get mixed messages from fail fast and break things to failure is not an option. Let's start this conversation by talking about what we get wrong about failure. Well, you're absolutely right, Laura. There are these two camps, right? There's two sort of divisions in this in this whole terrain. And one is the kind of Silicon Valley, what I call happy talk about fail fast, fail often, and the other is the, I'm sorry, I live in the real world, failure is not an option camp. And the truth is they're right. both right and they're both wrong and context matters. There are contexts where you have no choice but to fail fast and learn faster because you don't <laughs> have a playbook yet. You don't have an answer. So you, you have to try things. Now, I think we can dig deeper into that because that doesn't mean try anything, just throw things at the wall and see what sticks. It means try things thoughtfully. And we'll talk about what, what that means. But of course, when you're in, especially in familiar territory, and when there are high stakes, and when there is a formula to follow to get the result you seek, please follow it and follow it carefully. 
right? So indeed, I think all of our job is to prevent preventable failures in our lives and in our workplaces, right? Yeah. But there's a whole sort of area of things that can't be prevented um, and where, easier way to say this, where experimentation is necessary. Yeah. To pull a line from your fabulous new book that we're going to talk about in depth, we oftentimes fail at failure. And I want you to dig into what that really means. Why is it that we get it so wrong and that we don't we're not able to maximize what we can learn from it. We know that we learn more from failure than we do from success. So how do we get this wrong? First, let me describe, I think, the two ways that we fail at failure. And, and one is to fail to be cautious and careful in territories where there's a lot at stake and known solutions for delivering certain results. And the other is to fail to be playful and experimental in new territory where there's so much we can learn if we're willing to take the risks of possibly being wrong, maybe even probably being wrong. So, you know, neither of those outcomes is great. Most of us are doing both of those at various times, you know, being overly cautious when we shouldn't be and being not cautious enough when we when we should be. And part of the challenge here, part of the reason we fail at failure is that it's such a fraught issue for us fallible human beings. It's we don't like to fail. We have a natural instinctive aversion to failure. We particularly don't like our own failures. We don't want to look at them. It's emotionally painful. We also right. very much care and probably never has this been more acutely true than today what others think of us, right? And now there's just mm -hmm. so many ways to be seen. There's social media, there's just the the various ways in which we have larger audiences, more people judging us. And, and people don't want to be seen as failing. They want to be seen yeah. as succeeding naturally. Right? There's nothing unusual or unexpected about that. But, but that natural concern then leads us to a kind of risk aversion and a private you know, loneliness and concern about failing that is unnecessarily heavy. Yeah. Yeah. How can we get really out in front of that? I mean, I know a big bulk of your work is focused on this idea of psychological safety and creating an environment where you feel safe, right? And feeling safe obviously helps you f get more comfortable with this idea of failure. But how do we do that? How, what, what's, the, what's the trick? Or if you're going to leave this audience with yeah. some advice for how she should be thinking about this, how should she approach this so that she begins to think about failure maybe differently? Well, let, let's talk briefly about psychological safety. So indeed, it is about feeling safe, but it's, it's not about feeling comfortable. Right? It's, mm. it's, you know, feeling safe is actually better thought of as safe from danger. Right? So that, mm. you know, if you have psychological safety, let's say in a workplace or in a family, it means you believe you can speak up about what's on your mind, about what you observe or disagree with or need help with, without being rejected from that group, right? You, be you believe that, you don't believe it's easy or effortless to do this, but you do believe it's safe, right? It won't lead to danger. It won't lead to bad outcomes that you can't live with. So I think, I think it's really important to not leave people with the impression that psychological safety is a kind of cozy, comfortable state. 
in a very real way, it's more of a learning state, you know, more of an, a, an alive, adrenaline-fueled state of curiosity and learning. And one of the things we have to learn from, and one of the things we have to experience is failure, because we live in a volatile, uncertain, complex world, right? Things will go wrong. I can guarantee you that. The only real question is, is how will you navigate them? How will you respond to them? Will it be a learning-oriented, productive response, you know, or will it be an allergic, you know, fight or flight, generally flight nowadays, you know, where you just shut down and don't want to look at it? And I would argue that the former is so much more enabling and empowering than the latter. Yeah. Fear plays a big role here too. And sort of understanding the difference between what you just said about discomfort, right? That this is not a comfortable, never going to be a comfortable feeling for the vast majority of us. If you're normal, (laughs) failing is not going to be something that's fun, right? No. Even though you can learn from it, right? So, So talk about maybe how you get a handle on fear. Yeah. You know, I think you, um, you you take a look at it and you make it discussable. You just say, yep, I feel fear. That's normal. That's natural. Guess what? My colleagues feel it too, right? It, and, and so, you know, if you're the first one in a team to say, wow, this is really anxiety provoking, you are giving a gift to your colleagues right? because you're basically just naming what's in everybody's minds or most people's minds anyway. And once you make it discussable, it totally robs it of its power. It robs it of its ability to kind of narrow your ability to think and, you know, constrain that paralyzing effect of fear that's so well understood. And once it's shared, you know, shared fear is just not as challenging as private fear. Yeah. Yeah. How about this notion of, you know, a a lot of advice within the career space focuses on using your failures as a differentiator. Like what did you do when you failed? Creating maybe failure resumes and things like that, which can be really helpful. Maybe share your thoughts on the value or or, or not of whether it makes sense to do that and how we should go about sharing our failures and talking about them. You know, it's, it's not um, a simple yes or no, as you intuited with your question. Um, you know, on the one hand, if you do have, say, a failure resume or a kind of um, learning-oriented willingness to share widely your failures, I think first it helps if they are of a particular kind. So maybe it's helpful to define what an intelligent failure is. And that's one of the three types of failure I talk about in the book, because I can't imagine it would be helpful to have a failure resume of all the times you mailed it in and it didn't work out, you know, the times you didn't try very hard, the the times you, you know, accidentally put in sugar when it was supposed to be salt in the recipe, right? It just isn't, um, there's no new knowledge and there's not even, you know, it doesn't say much about you. But if the failures are of the intelligent kind, which basically means they happened in new territory, or at least new territory for you. You know, let's say you joined a local hockey team and you really haven't played it uh, before. You might, you know how to ice skate, but you haven't played ice hockey. You know, that's new for you and you can and should expect some failures. So it's new territory. It's in pursuit of a goal, you know, maybe to join a team or to get more exercise. It's, it's, it's legitimate that you're trying this new thing. Um, And it's, 
you've done your homework, you've thought about why this might be a good use of my time or a good use of our resources. And, and finally, the failure, should you experience it, is going to be as small as possible. You aren't, you aren't investing all your resources in an unproven investment. You know, it's, it's sort of, yeah, I can take Saturday afternoons and try this out, right? So, so long as the failure falls into that category, that wonderfully learning-oriented envelope-pushing category, then I think you can't go wrong sharing them. Because people will empathize, they will um, they will have been there themselves. They will appreciate the, in a sense, the good humored sharing of you know these frustrating events in our lives, and that makes yeah. you uh, likable, human, you know, smart, confident, confident enough to share the things that didn't go well as well as the things that did go well. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it makes your experience really unique. Like it's, it can be a differentiator truly as you think about how your background and experiences and maybe what you've learned and how you've come out on the other side of whatever it is that happened, telling that story, which I think is so interesting. So you, an intelligent failure is the good kind of failure where you're learning from it, right? As we just talked about, but let's talk about some of the other kinds of failures, some all failures not created equal, as you talk about in the book. Let's talk maybe about some of those other types of failures. But the other, I identify three types. You know, the intelligent failure, which are the right kind of wrong, and they are the only way to get the knowledge you seek in new territory. You have to, you have to try. And and so, by the way, sometimes when you try something new, you're right and you succeed, so that's good too. But sometimes you fail. And the other two kinds, I call them basic and complex. And basic means a single cause failure. Right? You, you made a single error. You know, you took a left turn when you were supposed to take a right and you ended up at the wrong destination or late for your meeting. Um, that is a basic failure. And complex failures are multi-causal. They are the kinds of things that go wrong when multiple factors line up in just the wrong way. Right? That, any one of those factors wouldn't have caused the failure on its own. It was just that unfortunate confluence of factors, you know, that can lead to anything from a global supply chain breakdown during a pandemic, uh, you know, to a um, a patient getting the wrong medication uh, in in a hospital ward. Right. You talk about you you use uh, uh, make great use of case studies in this book. I know you do in the classroom as well. I've been the lucky beneficiary to spend some time in your classroom number of years ago, about a decade ago, um, which was really really wonderful. But it brings to life so much of this content, including the case studies that you talk about, the stories that you tell about Boeing and what happened in that situation. Now that would be considered a complex failure. And I'm, of course, talking about the tragic, you know, two tragic airline crashes of 737s, Lion Air, and I actually can't remember the other one from the book. Um, but maybe talk a little bit about that particular exa- example. Yes. Yeah, so that is a, that is, you know, the ultimate or an ultimate complex failure. And in the book, I describe it as one that played out over decades because it really did. Right. It, it, it began, one could, one could argue in the analysis, it began with the, with the merger or the takeover of McDonnell Douglas by Boeing many years ago. It led to not 
by design, but it led to aspects of McConnell, McDonnell Douglas's culture sort of taking over aspects of Boeing's culture. Boeing had always had a famously engineer-driven culture. McDonnell Douglas had more of a sort of finance-driven culture. And it also led to, I won't, I won't tell the whole story, but it also led to the separation of the sort of headquarters, C-suite folks and the engineers. They moved the they moved headquarters to Chicago out of Seattle. It used to literally be across the street where there would be sort of a lot of easy conversation uh, between those running the business and those designing uh, the plane. So in a way, that set the stage for some disconnects between essentially management and engineering that um, was then exacerbated by an announcement by Airbus of a brand new plane that was going to be more fuel efficient and, you know, quite large capacity. And suddenly, you know, and Boeing was caught unawares by this announcement and they, you know, the development of a brand new plane from scratch takes way too long to actually compete. So they thought, we'll take our 737 and we will stretch it. Uh, hence the 737 MAX. And that changes the aerodynamics. So long story short, we'll get we'll develop some software to uh, to alter that. But then meanwhile, the regulators say if you have a sufficiently different kind of craft, you have to require training. And if you require training, your customers are unhappy because that's unproductive time. Your customers being airlines, not not passengers. And so, uh, you know, I could I could if I told the full and complete story, you would probably easily be able to identify, you know, 10 or 12 or 15 factors that contributed to these tragic accidents. And in a way, like many complex failures, all you have to do is take one or two of those pieces of the story out and this wouldn't happen, right? And and so that you know that's the the complexity of complex failures is that there's so uh, many causes and it makes us scared because well how do you ever you know fix all of those but the the silver lining is you don't have to fix all of them you only have to catch and correct one or two of them and then yeah the failure doesn't happen but that takes vigilance and conversations and psychological safety, all of which was notably missing in this particular era at Boeing. Yeah, it makes for a fa just a really fascinating case study when you think about this topic of failure, these multifaceted, you know, the, the decisions that didn't happen, the checks and balances that didn't happen, just on one on top of the other on top of the other. Um, so it's very, very interesting. Let's maybe pivot a bit because I have a lot of our listeners, our parents, and they're thinking about this maybe in the context of how do the how how should they think about this notion of failure and failing well in the context of raising children? Oh, such a good question. And I think the 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 short answer is do not deprive your children of the opportunity to fail, fail well. Right. And of course, again, that means. No, this isn't about allowing them to be sloppy or to, you know, to, to chase their ball out into, into traffic when it goes off the yard. Um, those are the kinds of preventable failures you should be on top of and help them learn to be on top of as well. But, you know, failures in new territory, and for kids, almost all territory is new territory, are absolutely essential to their growth and character development and also to their 
failure muscles, right? Their ability to sort of be resilient human beings who can withstand the small setbacks of disappointments that happen, you know, professionally and 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 personally. And it is so tempting as a parent, I know, because I I have I have two <laughs> sons to, you know, to want to get out ahead of it. And, right. you know, to kind of be that snowplow that makes the ground absolutely flat so that they don't have to experience any suffering or pain because you love them and you don't want them. To, but you're not doing them any service at all. So, you know, in, in the book, I, I write about my own um, sort of almost stumble on that where I, I had many stumbles as a parent, but my almost stumble where my 16-year-old son came home and said he was going to take a summer job um, selling solar panels door to door, right? And I'm just, my heart sank because this 16-year-old, first of all, straight A student, you know, amazing kid, an introvert, I have to have to say. So he's had a lot of, you know, a lot of, he's a good athlete. He's had a lot of success academically and in, and in sports. And door to door sales is like famously full of failure and you know, solar panels, like that could even be more than the usual failure. That could be, you know, people's rage at, you know, know, how dare you come and talk to us about solar energy, right? So I'm thinking, I'm thinking, I gotta, I gotta stop this, right? But of course I couldn't and didn't. I think he had already said yes, so you can't stop that. And he had a great summer, right? He obviously experienced a lot of rejection, but that didn't kill him um, by by any stretch. And he was really proud of the few sales that he did make. What a great experience! And by the way, he you know today is a, is an engineer in the sustainable um, energy space. Yeah, maybe talk about a little bit about we we started the conversation talking about your background in psychological safety, and I'm so fascinated by. You know, we apply this in the workplace, you know, making a people feel like they can take risks and not be, you know, they'll be held accountable, of course, but they will yeah. still be supportive if a mistake happens or if things don't work out exactly. The same thing is true, obviously, in your own household. And you're just, you're talking about, you know, your son taking the risk and taking a job that seemed, well, pretty challenging on many, many levels, right? Maybe talk about how we create that same psychological safety at home and in these other contexts that we operate in. Yeah, I mean, I think the most important thing that that families can do and parents can do is create psychological safety within the family for learning. Right. So, and that really means that what what children understand is that their voice is welcome, um, and especially as they get to be teenagers and you know they may be in a situation where they're uncomfortable, you know, want an immediate ride home, they know. That when they call, maybe one in the morning, and they ask for that ride, they get it, no questions asked. It won't be, well, how the heck did you find yourself in that situation? And where was your judgment? Like, we may do some careful coaching later, but that immediate response will always be, thank you so much for calling. Right? It's So it's the, you know, it's the psychological safety for the learning to happen here because of what's at stake. Yeah, absolutely. Can we talk a bit about some of the advice that you have for really making the most of failures when they happen? You quote Carol Dweck, who's one of my personal favorites, her her famous book, Mindset, we talk about on this podcast a lot. 
that's one component, but maybe let's dig into that a bit more as to what you do when you've had a failure of one of these varieties. God forbid it's the complex kind and hopefully it's the intelligent kind. But when that happens, let's talk about the aftermath and some coaching that you can give our listeners as we think about how to recover from failure. So first of all, I think it's really important that you point out that you can learn from all three kinds of failure. Just because there's sort of one good kind and two not so good kinds, all of them offer us rich lessons. You know, mm. we can we can learn from all of them and we must learn from all of them. The key question, the doorway through which you walk to do the learning from failure is what happened. You know, not what your instinct is telling you, which is who did it, you know, or who's to blame. Uh, it's what happened. And that is a kind of scientific question, right? It's a cool, dispassionate question that says, let's understand the events as they unfolded. And that story, and by the way, the human brain is very much geared to value stories and to remember stories. So that getting that story out is really important for the memorability and for the learning. And in that story, there will be many things that were just fine as as they unfolded. And then, you know, a couple of places where, oh, that's interesting. Like maybe we could have done that better or done that differently. And, and that's where the learning comes. And if it's memorable, it really will affect and shape your, your future behavior in you know, similar situations. Yeah. It can be hard to be honest with ourselves, right? That, oh. that self-awareness is, uh, it, it sounds great, right? We can get out our journals and we can write about it and what we learn, but at the same time, being honest with ourselves can be really, really hard. So maybe advice for how to hold yourself more accountable when it can be really hard and emotional. It can be very emotional and scary yeah. to do that. So maybe talk Abs about some advice for how you... Yeah, absolutely. You know, in fact, first I want to say what accountable means. I think so So many of us, especially when, you know, from, from our career experiences, when we hear the phrase held accountable, it's, you know, it's instant freeze. It's an instant scary <laughs> term because it usually just is almost code for punishment. And and yet that's not the original meaning of the term. I mean, being held to account, account is a story, right? It's, it's, it's your ability to actually account for what happened, to understand what happened, to tell the story of what happened. And then, of course, to take full responsibility for your contributions to that story, which may be large or they may be small. Um, they may be errors of omission or commission. There might have been things you did not do that had you done would have led to a better outcome. There may be things you did that contributed to the problem. So it's being held accountable is being asked in a way. It's really just being asked to learn. It's being asked to learn from the past so that you have a better ability to shape the future. And that's what we all want, right? I mean, that's what we want in our lives. That's what we want in our careers. We want to shape the future, and we cannot do it if we're unwilling to kind of glean those little treasures from the past. Yeah. Shame can play a role here. I know you quote Brene Brown um, in the book as well and her terrific work that she's done on shame and vulnerability. Maybe talk about how we can put that into context and and make sure that we're at least aware of the fact that shame can play a role and can really color our ability to learn. No one has done more to help us 
with this very human and very painful issue of, of shame than Brene Brown. Right? So I, I do write a little bit, don't do it justice, but a little bit about her work in the book because shame is such a powerful force in the study of failure and in our ability to kind of uh, confront failure. But I think very much like Brene Brown, I, I, I point out that we are all vulnerable. That's a fact. But the only thing that's not a fact is whether you acknowledge it to yourself and others. Right? It's just by virtue of being a human being on this planet, you're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to uncertainty. You're vulnerable to things outside your control. It's okay, right? I mean, that's just that's our reality, and and it both it both makes us human and also makes us more like each other than unlike each other. So it's it, you know it's something that. Um, in a way, could be a source of connectedness and bonding among us. But the, I think the way you drive shame out of the equation is you, and the emotion, the acute emotion that comes with it, is that you, you know, you let cooler heads prevail. Right? You mm. you do your very best to cognitively unpack. You know, again, it's that question: What happened? To to cognitively unpack the facts, if you will, and the facts don't come with emotion. They, gen- they they trigger emotion, but we can also look at them more dispassionately and say, okay, that happened. You know, our instant reaction is, oh, that was awful, or I'm going to die, or I'm, you know, never going to have friends again, or whatever it is, when the reality is, oh, that happened. It was inconvenient, right? Or it was disappointing, right? It's So first, cool it down, if you will. And then, do your best. The whole theme of the self-awareness chapter is to choose learning over knowing. And that's really Carol Dweck's mindset. You know, it's, it's to recognize our tendency to think we see reality in all its glory, when in fact we only see a biased and limited view of reality shaped by our own backgrounds. Right? And then to sort of say, okay, I'm going to choose curiosity rather than wishing desperately to be right, you know, and I'm going to insist on being right. No, I'm going to insist on learning more so that I can do better next time. Yeah, yeah. And maybe getting outside feedback, people who really know you, who you really trust, who are able to help you see aspects of yourself that may be hard for you because of all the reasons that you just said, the emotion, the fear, the shame, all those things can make it hard for us to see ourselves clearly. Exactly right. Learning from failure is a team sport more often than not, right? And we need to, when, when you ask that question, what happened? It will be rare, unless it's something just all in your own world, that you have a full answer to that question. You've got to um, uh, you've got to invite other perspectives in to understand really what happened. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe let's talk a little bit about your story and your journey and how you came to this work. Um, I'm really fascinated by your background and how you've ended up here and how you became, you are the expert on psychological safety and in the management and leadership uh, um, capacity. And you've been published numerous times over, including this fabulous latest book. But let's talk about how you got here. Was this something that was always interesting to you? Well, yes and no. I mean, I, I, I certainly 
certainly had an unusual appreciation for succeeding and an unusual, you know, a, 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 a real, a very real aversion to failure as a student in elementary school and high school and even college. So I was, I was sort of hell bent on success, if you will. But that's not a, a formula for success by any stretch. And by the time I got out of college, I was pretty like unsure. I, I knew I wanted to matter. I knew I wanted to make a difference, but I was really um, ill-equipped to do that very well. So the, um, the journey that takes me to here today could not have been a whole lot more circuitous, at least for the first 10 years out of college. Right? So I worked as an engineer. I really enjoyed it. And realized I was sort of, I was more passionate about people and how, you know, the projects that I was a part of, it's like the people side of it that kind of made them work or not work. And I wanted to understand that better, but I didn't have a language for how you do that. And I went to work for a consulting company and, you know, learned a lot more, but by, and I, I decided it was really interesting that it was work on organizational change and culture change. And it was really interesting, but then I felt quite inept because I had no formal training in business or psychology. And I knew I was in over my head. And I just thought, if I really like this work, which I did, I better go get more school, right? So I applied to a PhD program, not at 10 years after graduating from college, which I didn't quite realize at the time was unusual because I wasn't, you know, we didn't have the internet. I wasn't really talking to people like, well, when do you do this? It just seemed like you do it when you do it. And oops, you know, then I got there. Everybody's like eight years (laughs) younger than I am. It's like, oh, well, that's okay. You know, you do what you do when you do it. Um, So lots of sense of, and then it was such a culture shift, right? To, To be in a PhD program, you know, compared to a company or compared to being an engineer, especially as an engineer and in the company too, we're all about what works, right? We were always trying to solve right. problems and what works. Whereas in academia, it was all about sort of science and understanding, understanding what works, but and, and writing about it, which is like, I wasn't a writer, right? So I had, I had to become a writer. I had to learn statistics. I had to learn science. And I had you know, maybe 20 times in the first year and the second year where I absolutely knew for sure I was going to have to drop out and find a new path forward, which, you know, I didn't (laughs) think that would be horrible, but it it was certainly inconvenient. So, you know, eventually I found the formula. Like eventually I figured out how to be a reader and a writer and a teacher. And I loved it. And I still love it, right? So I found my path, but it took a while. So I I just, you know, for anyone who's sort of thinking about pivoting, um, you know, pivots can be great. This was a huge pivot. Um, And now, you know, I didn't set out to study psychological safety. I wouldn't have known what that was. Um, I set out to study organizational learning. And it didn't take me too long to figure out that really the best way to get a handle on organizational learning was to look at team learning because organizations learn through their teams. They learn through their senior management teams, through their new product development teams, you know, production teams, right? It's the teams doing the work where the learning that matters happens, I decided, right? So I I set out to study that. And then it wasn't too long before I sort of stumbled into the fact that the teams that were more able to learn were the ones that were able to be open and speak up, like kind of a blinding flash of the obvious, but it hadn't really been written about in the in the scientific literature before. And 
it turns out there could there was a lot you could do with figuring out that there are interpersonal climate differences across groups, figuring out how to measure that, and then whether, and yes, it does, pre- whether it predicts outcomes like performance or innovation or quality improvement. And so that gave rise to you know a, a very robust sort of scientific literature on psychological safety and its role in in organizations in 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 all kinds of organizations, including, uh, but not limited to healthcare organizations. Yeah, yeah. It's so interesting. Your story is so interesting to me because your journey is maybe a, a little less typical. But that first decade of your career probably gave you really important insights that you wouldn't have had otherwise had you not been a practitioner first. I'm curious as to whether you think that's the case. There is no question that that is the case, right? And and in two very different ways. So first, being a kind of a practicing engineer, you do learn about how to overcome a little bit of frustration and, you know, things don't always work. You don't always solve the problems exactly the way you'd hope or as quickly as you'd hope. But the, the you know, whether or not you've solved them is incontrovertible because you can really demonstrate it or not. And, and so that was a kind of um, an appreciation for things that are hard, but you could, if you keep working at them, you can make progress in them. And then to spend, you know, more than three years, almost four years, sort of in some of the largest uh, and oldest corporations in in the country, um, you know, learning about um, sort of people, like really well-meaning people in organizations that were broken to varying degrees based on bureaucracy and hierarchy and and sort of blinders that led them to not see some of the writing on the market wall. And, you know, sort of to see how, you know, really smart, thoughtful people could nonetheless contribute to problematic outcomes because they just couldn't figure out how to change their lumbering giants. And so, you know, I learned a lot about that kind of that reality of the work environment that certainly influenced how I asked research questions and how I studied things. Yeah. So interesting. Okay. I've got one more question for, I actually have lots more questions, but we only have time for one more. And it relates to pivoting and, and knowing when you face these obstacles, anytime that, you, as you just told your story, there were many moments in your story when you encountered great difficulty. I'm sure you had lots of failures, big and small. How did you know you were on the right path? What was maybe so, sort of your your mindset, and how did you how did you know to persevere versus saying, "Okay, time to do a hard pivot," versus versus maybe a mini pivot or just a recalculation? Maybe some perspective around that. So it is hard, and it, it may not ever be possible to know for sure you're on the right path. But I think there's a, a couple of ways you can get reasonably good data about that. And, and, and one is, of course, that pause, that reflective pause. It's like, okay, what's, what's happening? How am I feeling about it? How am I thinking about it? Is there another way to think about it? And, you know, is like, is this really a failure that says I should get off this path? Or is this just one of the regular bumps in the road on this path that nearly everybody will experience at some time or another? And, and then, very quickly, I think you've got to get some other voices into the conversation because you only can you can only see so much. So I think the really crucial practice is to be seeking advice from trusted mentors, colleagues, friends, you know, your mom. I mean, just get other people's 
input. Be honest with them and allow them to be honest with you. Because, you know, there are, I've had PhD students, I remember one in particular who was absolutely committed to a certain phenomenon that this was going to be their dissertation, this was going to be, you know, and it was it was A, not a terribly good idea, and B, there was many, many external signals that it just wasn't working. And so there's a, you know, you've got to figure out how not to be stubbornly pushing on, you know, pushing a boulder up the hill that doesn't really want to go up that hill versus is this the lovely term we love so much, which is grit or persistence, right? Is this is this just a dogged, persistent person who's going to get there in the end, or is this a bad idea? And it's very rare that you have the full answer in your own head and heart. You've got to get other people's perspectives, and then you've got to listen to them. Yeah, I love that. I love that perspective. I love this conversation. The book is called The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. It hits bookstores and Amazon September 5th, 2023. So you can pre-order it now if you're listening to this before that date. So Amy, thank you so much again. I really loved the conversation. Thank you for this tremendous contribution that you've made. Laura, I loved it. What a treat it was to spend this time talking with you. Thank you. You're very kind. Hey, friend, thanks so much for joining me today for this conversation with Professor Amy Edmondson. You can order her book. It's called The Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well. I have included a link in the show notes where you can order the book. But most of all, I would love to hear what you thought about this week's conversation. Failure is a a difficult topic, right? Nobody loves to fail, even though, as as we talked about, we learn so much from those failures, but it's not fun. It also brings up so much fear and angst in so many of us. And if you struggle with perfectionism, oh, failure is a real tough one to get your head around. So I'd love to hear what of this conversation resonated with you and how you think about failure in your own journey. I would really, really like to hear. You can reach me via the contact link in the show notes for this episode. Again, it's episode 261. Or you can take a screenshot of the cover of this episode if you're listening on your phone and you can post it on your Instagram stories or on LinkedIn and be sure to tag me. You'll find me at Laura Cox Kaplan. In the meantime, friend, thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. As we roll out additional new content this season, be sure to let me know about other topics that you would be interested in and which episode topics are really resonating most with you. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening and I'll talk to you again next week. And remember, She Said, She Said podcast is a weekly production of She Said, She Said Media.